Amen. Well, what a night it's been already, huh? Thank you, Anna and Chiwa, for sharing that. That was beautiful, wasn't it? Um, I played the trumpet at an early age, but it did not sound near as beautiful as that. <laughs> as you know, we're in this little mini two-week series here on Jesus. Uh, it's called What Child Is This? Exploring the Humanity and Divinity of Christ. And the reason we're talking about this is because Christianity uh, is, is fairly unique in, this, in a number of ways, but for this particular reason, that our, our belief system is not really about, first of all, about a set of ideas, and it's not, first of all, about a specific code of conduct. And that may be news to some of you, because if you've grown up in church or grown up in Christian families, if anyone were to say, well, tell me a little bit about Christianity, the first thing you would reach for maybe is the thou shalt nots. And our tendency is to say, okay, look, if I'm going to understand this religion, then I want to understand the, the set of rules or the expectations or what are the norms of this religion and how am I supposed to live and act and what are the ideas. But Christianity is not, first of all, about ideas, nor is it, first of all, about a set of rules. It is, at its core, about the person of Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, look, if we get the question of who wrong then the question of how doesn't matter. And so much of the time we, we spend our, our, our time in church talking about the how and how we should raise our kids and how we should do this and how we should do that. And those are all important subjects. But if we are to get a sense of guidance or direction in those areas, before we can even talk about the hows, we've got to make sure we understand, at least see correctly, the who. And so what better season than the season of Advent to talk about the person of Jesus Christ and talk about what we believe about him. Now, I want to say from the outset that what I talk about what I talked about last week and what we talk about tonight is not designed to be a, a proof or a set of arguments that you can then take to your, your friends and say, hey, look, this is proof. None of this is proof. What we're talking about tonight are the reasons that we're going to demonstrate why we believe these things, but by no means, I don't want you to be misled, by no means is this intended to be, you see, irrefutable, irrefutable evidence. It's proof. It's evidence that demands a verdict in the positive sense. It's not necessarily the case. But what I also want us to understand is this view of Jesus as fully human and fully God is not something we've made up. Last week we talked about the humanity of Jesus and why we believe that and why that matters. Why does this matter? When I was in college, and I told you this last week, I was a theology major, and that was usually a conversation ender as soon as I said that, you know, because we don't like that word, theology. It just sounds heavy. It sounds too analytical. It sounds like it leads to arguments. But we talked about last week the, the, the fact that we all have a theology. Every one of us has a theology. So we might as well make sure we have a good one. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, you might as well make sure your theology is a good one, because you have one. And, and whether you know it or not, it shows up in the way that you live. Actually, I think if we could have a tape recorder of all of our prayers every day, there is probably no better indicator of our theology than our prayers. And sometimes our prayers betray us because we say we believe this about God, but we pray a different sort of way. Very early on, there was a heresy about the divinity of Christ, and I talked to you last week about some of the heresies related to the humanity of Christ. Um, I want to tell you a few of these heresies about the, the divinity of Christ. And the reason I want to do this, let me just back up and say this. 
typically on Sunday nights, we'll take a text and we'll dive in deep to, with it and, and kind of, you know, exegete it really well. Tonight, there's going to be a lot of notes to take and a lot of scriptures to write down, uh, and hopefully they'll all be helpful to you. But there's this heresy called Ebionism uh, that basically said this, look, Jesus was an ordinary human, but he possessed very special gifts. Uh, the way that they would say it is, is um, look, he had the Christ, the Messiah, the anointing in our language. He had that anointing of God upon him for a little while, but then it was removed and then he suffered and died. And so, you know, he stopped being God. It was sort of this temporary arrangement. And these guys, the Ebionists, rejected Paul's teachings, uh, even though Paul's letters clearly talked about Christ as being divine. And we'll get to that in a moment. Another heresy that showed up later in, the, in about the 3rd, 4th century uh, was, was put forth by a teacher named Arius, and it's called Arianism after him. And basically what it says is, look, Jesus was, was not quite human. Okay, I'll give you that. Not, not just human, not merely human, but he was sort of a demigod, highest of all creatures, creatures but not uncreated. Still a created person, thing, being. And the reason why they couldn't go there is because they had this view of God that said, look, God is only one and one person and one thing. So if we say that Jesus was also God, what do we do with monotheism? And what do we, you know, and this was the wrestling match that, 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 of ideas about what to do with Jesus. Because if you say he is fully God, that would eventually lead you to some exploration of, well, is God one person, two persons, three persons? And so... The Arianists said, well, we can't accept that. We can't begin to say that Jesus is fully God. He could have been temporarily God. And the reason we can't is because it messes with all of our different stuff. And he had this, Arius had this big debate with the bishop of, of Alexandria. And eventually, Constantine steps in and says, I'm going to call a council. And he calls this council of Nicaea where they settle the issue. Now, some of you may be familiar with Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code and all this stuff. There is this elaborate conspiracy theory that it's Constantine who made up or, or who you know, purported this theory, this belief that Jesus was God, and it's because he did that and he did it for political reasons and all this stuff. I want you to know that the Council of Nicaea, all that it did was uphold a view of Jesus that was already around by the apostles early on in the second century. Last week, we baptized uh, people, and we had a wonderful time listening to their, a little bit of their stories and hearing them stand in front of us and confess their faith in Christ. We actually had them recite or, or say yes to the same three questions that the early apostles asked baptism candidates. And the three questions, we'll put them back on the screen tonight. They, they, you can see early on that they're already formulating this belief in a three-in-one God, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you can see from these questions, this middle paragraph question is one long question. Because there's a lot of things they wanted to make sure they got right about the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ. And so the questions were as follows. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? Yes. Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and died and rose again at the third day, living from among the dead and ascended unto heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the quick, i.e. the living and the dead? Do you believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Church, and the resurrection of the flesh? So... Here we can say, all right, early on the church began to say, look, it matters what we believe about Jesus as man, as God, really, really matters. Tertullian, the bishop of Carthage around the late 2nd century, used this phrase. He said, look, it's one person but two natures. 
And that phrase survived for a long time in the West as a way of sort of describing, not necessarily explaining how this is. I want us to take a few moments tonight and and explore some of these passages in the New Testament that we can point to and say, okay, look, this is what Jesus sort of said and did, and, 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 and then this is what the apostles Paul and the writer of Hebrews, and others, this is what they said then about Jesus. And all of these things together kind of demonstrate our reasons for saying, look, this is clearly something upheld. Why we believe in the divinity of Christ, first of all, we would say, well, he was born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's one of the things we would say as one of the reasons. Again, this is not proof. These are demonstrations of why we believe this. Luke 1, 26. It's a bit long, but we'll skip around. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And here's the verse. But how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Jesus demonstrated his own confidence in this belief. And we see this in Mark 2, verse 3, where Jesus himself believes he has the authority to forgive sins. He forgives sins. And the story in Mark 3 is an interesting one. It goes like this. And some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. You know this story. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat. The paralyzed man was lying on And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Curious, right? They clearly had other things on their mind. The reason they dug a hole through the roof was because the man could not walk. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law who were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And I love how Mark says they were thinking this. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. Yikes. And he said to him, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Because after all, we don't know if they really are, right? That's a fine thing to just pronounce to someone. You're forgiven. You don't know if they really are, but you can say it. And Jesus says, look, which is easier to say, but look, so that you know. Go, or just say, get up, take your mat, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus says, all right, I'll do both. I'll forgive, and I'll heal. And clearly, they're upset about this uh, because they believe that forgiving, forgiving sins is something only God could do. It was a divine prerogative, one that Jesus easily claimed that he had. Look, I I can do this. I I have the right to do this. Which leads us to number three. He made claims that only God can make. And you see this throughout the gospel stories, but I'll just pull out a a couple of examples for you. One uh, is in Mark 2, verse 27 to 28. He redefines the Sabbath. You know, they're hungry and they pick these grains and the people are protesting, hey, you can't do this. And he says, look, 
The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, and so the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. He declares him, look, I've got the right to redefine this. They're thinking, who is this guy? John 8, 58 is maybe one of the most startling claims that Jesus makes. He's answering them. They're having this discussion about Abraham, and he says, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. I say, well, Jesus, that's bad grammar. Before Abraham was, you were, you know, or I was, you know, I, I be, if you're into Ebonics, but I am doesn't really work there, you know. Now, Jesus is making a point, and clearly he's referencing the, the Exodus 3 moment where Moses is in the burning bush, and, and he says, who, who shall I tell him that sent me? And the unspeakable name of God, Yahweh, speaks from the bush and says, Moses, you tell him, I am that I am. Wow. So Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Am. And they get very, very upset about this. At this moment, they say, Who, this guy's blaspheming. This is where he's crossed the line. Matthew 5 in the famous Sermon on the Mount, which is the most written about, most commentated about passage of, of, of Scripture. Jesus clearly sets himself up as equal, actually greater than Moses, because he says things like, look, you have heard it said, and then he quotes Moses. And then says, but I say to you, look, I know what Moses told you what, from what he heard on the mountain from God, but now I'm taking it a step further. Excuse me? You have to understand the audacity of what Jesus was doing. It wasn't like he was saying, yeah, Mo, that's pretty good. Let me tell you my spin on it. He wasn't giving a spin. He was saying, yes, and even more this. Not just don't murder, don't hate. Not just don't commit adultery, don't love. He was upping the bar. What gave him the right to one-up Moses? What gave him the right to one-up the one who spoke for God? Because he believed he was. Finally, he said he would judge the world. Now, we take this as sort of a given as Christians. Oh, yeah, Jesus you know, he's going to judge the world. But understand in Genesis 18, 25, Abraham calls God, Yahweh, the judge of the earth. In Joel 3, verse 12, it says that one day, in that final day, Yahweh will sit and judge all the nations. So in Matthew 25, verse 31 through 46, when Jesus says, Oh, and on that day, the Son of Man will judge the nations. The listeners found that very, very offensive. That's a fine thing for us to read with our Christian lenses and say, well, of course he is. But for the Jews, for the listeners of Jesus sitting there, standing there in that day, they would have said, excuse me? Jesus accepted the confession or worship of him as God. We're going to look at a few people who said this. Peter says it, and Jesus accepts Peter's confession. Matthew 16, verse 15 through 17. What about you, he asks. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. He doesn't say, oh, Peter, that's, that's too much. No, no, no. He says, you're right. Pilate, Matthew 26, But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of, the li- of God. It's actually the high priest that he's contradicting, that he doesn't contradict. And Jesus replied, yes, it is as you say. 
And some have said, oh, well, maybe Jesus is just being, you know, he's playing a joke, he's being sarcastic. Hey, you said it, not me. But then he follows it up by saying, yes, you said it. It is as you say, but I say to all of you in the future, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's as you say and even more. Matthew 26, verse 65 through 66, this is the continuation. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. If there was ever a time for Jesus to back down from his claims, it would be this moment. And yet he remained silent. Okay. He accepts, he submits to death based on the accusation of blasphemy. He knows why they're killing him, and he knows that they're right. After his resurrection, he accepts Thomas's declaration. This is found in John 20, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with him. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Let's see. The doors are locked. The inner room, Jesus appears and says, Hey, peace. Really? Then quit walking through the walls or appearing in locked rooms. If you really want me to be at peace, I'll... And then he says to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Again, the humanity. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. See where these wounds are. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Don't have a scripture on that one, but it's in all four Gospels. The death and resurrection of Jesus, His ascension to heaven. Say, so, well, well, yeah. what is so, rem- that, that on its own, the resurrection is an incredible statement about His divinity. It's also kind of interesting that the Gospel writers chose as their witnesses to the resurrection women. Now, this is not an offense to women, but women were not allowed in those days to testify in a Roman court. The gospel writers were trying to make, you know, sort of bolster their case for Jesus as God. They would have said, a couple of Roman dudes saw the end. But they say, look, it was women that got to the tomb first. He wasn't there. And they saw him. They believed. Later on, the apostles, his divinity is affirmed and taught by the apostles. And we'll look through the list here. John, this is maybe the most familiar passage for many of us. John 1 Verse 1 through 5, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. John says again in John 20, the end of his gospel, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's saying, look, the reason I've recorded all these stories is not just so you'll have some good things to read and talk about and listen to. The reason I've written all this stuff is so that you'll believe that he's the Christ. That in the end, all of this information is designed to lead us to something. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The reason they say things like that is they're trying to say that his divinity was prior to his coming to earth. Does that make sense? They're trying to say, look, it's not this, the belief that some cults have that, you know, he was human, and then at baptism, he sort of became divine because he was like the, the perfect human. And God says, I'm just going to elevate you to divine. No, they're saying, look, he's, his divinity is pre-existing. It's a pre-existing condition. <laughs> the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided for the purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. Paul says it a number of different times. We'll give you four of them. Colossians 1, verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's talking about Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. In other words, he's the first one to experience resurrection, but because of him, we're all going to experience it too, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. As if he hadn't driven it home already, Paul goes on. Colossians 2 verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul reaffirms this idea of Jesus coming to judge. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead? And in view of his appearing and in his, and his kingdom, I give you this charge. And he goes on. Philippians 2 is this next passage we'll read. And I want to read it to you and then we'll talk about it in a moment because there's some controversy with it. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, even death, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, Father. Now that's a lot of scripture that we've just read tonight. Again, it's not designed to say, see, look, prove. But if we're going to trust that these apostles were giving witness to what they believed and what they had seen and heard, then we're going to take what they said about Jesus very seriously. This Philippians 2 passage is interesting because there was this kenosis theory that, that rose up about 100 years ago or so that began to say, oh, you see, kenosis is this Greek word for emptying. And in, in some translations it says Jesus empties himself. Oh, you see, they said, Jesus emptied himself of all divinity, so he wasn't divine at all when he was on earth. But I think what we first need to realize is Paul, in writing Philippians 2, is not, first of all, giving us a treatise on Christology. He's telling the Philippian church to be like Jesus, to let his attitude be in them, 
There's some fighting. There's some jockeying for position. And he's saying, look, if Jesus could not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but yet was willing to come and serve us, can't you guys get along? Can't you serve? Let the same attitude be in you. And furthermore, there is a sense in which you would say, yeah, did Jesus suspend some of his attributes of his divinity while on earth? Well, to some extent, you'd have to say his essence remained the same as divine. But by the fact of taking a body, he was not omnipresent, right? There's also this, this thing you say, well, he could read their thoughts, but how? Was he fully omniscient? Well, there's that moment where Jesus says, uh, the Son of Man doesn't even know the day or the hour. The Father knows. So there's some reason to say, okay, he didn't empty himself. He didn't lose any of his divinity. He didn't stop being God. But he allowed himself to suspend a few of those attributes for the sake of being fully human and fully God. How in the world did that happen? I don't know. It's a mystery. The early church fathers used a fancy phrase called hypostasis. We, 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 you know, we've extended it to say hypostatic union, where two natures could somehow coexist and yet be one, one person. Other than that, I don't know. But we believe that this is true. Why does this matter? This is just, you know, more tidbits to use at your Christmas parties coming up this week. Did you know, Tertullian, the bishop of Carthage said, did you know that Arius was defeated by Alien? The reason we're talking about all of this is because it has some very significant implications for us, some very obvious ones. If last week when we talked about the humanity of Christ, that one of the maybe chief implications of it is the fact that Jesus enters into our suffering, that when God sees our pain, He doesn't say, hmm, that's an interesting intellectual problem, how a good God could allow pain and suffering. He says, I'm going to enter it. We also talked about that the humanity of Christ is what allows him to come and atone for human sin. But it's his divinity that makes it so that his sacrifice is for all. You know, we used to have this old story uh, that you used in evangelical circles, you know, about a, two, two brothers, you know, that looked, you know, strikingly alike, and one of them was convicted of this felony, and went before the judge, and the judge condemned him to a lifetime sentence, and the other twin brother like snuck in and paid the penalty. You know, and we had this cutesy ways of explaining atonement. The reason why every illustration and analogy falls short and is cutesy by comparison is because there is no way to say that somebody could possibly pay the price for everybody's sin. If it's the humanity of Christ that allows Jesus to atone for humans, it's his divinity that allows him to atone for all humanity. Jesus made salvation available to everyone because when he took it upon himself, he did it as God. Earlier tonight, we, read, we listened to the read, Old Testament reading of Exodus 15. The reason we did that was because all through, as you read the Old Testament, when you, when you immerse yourselves in these narratives from Scripture about the Exodus story and, and God delivering His people from Egypt, we're immersing ourselves in these narratives about salvation, and we learn that God saves. And when Jesus comes, there's this moment in the Mount of Transfiguration when He's standing there, and it says that, that Jesus and Moses, they were talking a little bit about His departure, 
And there's some speculation. What do you, what do you mean they were talking about his departure? And there's a there's, there's, there's suggestion that maybe they were talking about how as Moses led his exodus, the Israel out of Egypt, they were talking about how Jesus was about to lead the final exodus, the ultimate exodus of all humanity who had been suffering in the chains and slavery to sin, that Jesus was about to be the greatest deliverer of all and to rescue all humanity. The reason we read that Exodus 15 passage is to say, as God showed himself to be the God who saves, we connect, we're supposed to connect salvation with the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We say then, if Jesus then is the Lord, it makes his death able to save all, to bring that salvation to all. But I think there is this other piece that Jesus, if he is fully God, if we believe that, we say, okay, yeah, okay, yes, we would have to also say that this is important because Jesus is the full revelation of God. If you've read the Old Testament, something I know many of you have, different parts of it, there are certain parts of it where you feel like this is difficult. I don't quite understand this. And why would God, you know, allow this? And how come there's, you know... And we understand that the law was there and the law does reveal God. The law is not just an arbitrary set of rules. It did, to a certain extent, reveal things about God's nature, about His goodness, about His justice, about what He cares about. But it could never, God could never be revealed in a list of ten things that He hates. The ultimate revelation of the Father is the Son. And Jesus says this, He says in John 14, verse 6, Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. But if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip says what we're all thinking, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Jesus says, answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Repeating. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. There is a confusion about what God's like. In, in the ancient societies, you know, you think about our records of what we have from the Egyptian myths, the Babylonian myths, and all this stuff. It, it would have been preposterous to say there's no God. All of the ancients, generally speaking, accepted that there was some God. What they didn't know is, what was he like? Was he good? Was he loving? Was he mad? Was he kind? Interestingly enough, the Egyptians have a myth about a flood story. The Babylonians have a myth about a flood story. Moses has a version of the flood story. And the point is not, was there a flood? That's the question we tend to ask. You see, this is proof. There was a flood, and this is the sign. You know, the, the, the point of the story is not, was there or wasn't there a flood? The point was, why 
And the God who sent this, what was he like? And so when Moses says this God who sends the flood it was, was sad that he did this, he means to tell us that this God was primarily a God of love. That at his core is a God of goodness and love. And so when Jesus finally comes to earth, he says, if there's any doubt in your mind about what the Father is like, the one who set all of this up, let me tell you, if you've seen me, you've seen him. Remember You remember that moment where the woman caught in the act of adultery was brought to me? You remember what I said to her? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You remember that conversation with the woman at the well where I confronted her about her various marriages and yet offered her living water? You remember the way I healed the sick? You remember how when the kids wanted to come to me, I said, come, let the children come to me. You remember when, I, when you wanted to send the crowds away because you were tired and it was late and I said, give them something to eat? You remember all those things I did, Jesus is saying, now in the final week of his life in John 14. He's, he's trying to jog the memory of his disciples and say, show you the Father What have I been doing for the last three years? That's all I've been doing. So remember. Remember how I interacted with the weak. Remember how I interacted with the poor. Remember how I interacted with the sick. Remember how I interacted with the sinner. Remember what I did. And when you remember that, you will know what the Father is like. If you want to know, look at me. It's been a long-standing practice among people, a discipline among Christians who wanted to say, Lord, make me like you. One of the favorite patterns is to read and reread the Gospels, specifically the words in red in many of your Bibles. So I just want to know, what's God like? You know? And sometimes we're so independent, we just want to say, well, I am going to figure this out on my own, and I'm going to go camping, and I'm going to take you know, uh, all my camping gear, and then I'm just going to say, God, show yourself to me. And he's saying, I did. And I wonder, I can't help but think in our, in our pursuit of the next ecstatic spiritual experience, if we're not neglecting Jesus and what the apostles wrote about Jesus. You want to see God? Okay, it's good to fast, it's good to go to retreats, it's good to go to conferences, it's good. But you want to know what God is like? You want God to reveal himself to you? He did. Look at the life of Jesus. Look at the life of Christ. See how he interacted. See how he talked. See how he lived. But the third reason we're talking about this tonight, or what it means for us, is if we say, and I'm by no means bullying, trying to bully you into saying this tonight, but if you say, yeah, I accept that Jesus is Lord and God and fully God, forever has been, forever will be, then you've significantly narrowed your options of how to treat Him. (laughs) Because it's all too easy, I think, in church to have this division between Christian and disciple and to say, well, I know, I'm, no, man, I'm a Christian. What do you mean? Well, I prayed the prayer, got my passport stamped for heaven. I'm just going to marinate here on earth and 
One day I'll get there. You know, I'm a Christian. Are you a disciple? Well, I don't know if I'm a disciple. I think such distinction would not have made sense to the early apostles. Because they were so convinced. The way they wrote about him, the way they even made their baptism candidates confess this thing, and later on it became a longer process, two years, three years, four years, before they could actually get baptized. They they, they cared so much about this. They were not about to say, well, you know, it's good. You accepted Jesus? Good for you. Here's your Christian fish sticker. Put it on the back of your car. They would have said, Really? Are you sure? Are you sure that you believe that this is the Son of God? Because if you do believe that, understand that the Jews are going to hate you. They're going to accuse you of being not monotheistic. They're going to accuse you of being polytheistic. Understand that the Romans and the pagans are going to accuse you of being atheistic. Understand that nobody around you is going to understand this. Know that if you really believe this claim, you're signing up for a life of discipleship and a life of taking up your cross. The reason the early apostles cared so much about getting this right is because they knew you were going to have to stand before a Roman court someday, possibly, and testify. About 2,000 years later, an English writer named C.S. Lewis wrote something very similar. He said, look, enough with this patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a good teacher. He didn't give us that option. If you really understood the audacity of his claims, which we talked about tonight, which I read to you, you would say this guy is either a lunatic, a raving madman, a social outcast, mentally demented sort of crazy person claiming he's God. Either he was crazy or he was the best liar ever and just lied to everybody and had everybody convinced. Or he was telling the truth, in which case he's Lord. And this is the famous lunatic liar or liar lunatic Lord thing that C.S. Lewis put forth. Why that matters is because You know, people are okay talking about Jesus. They're okay talking about Buddha. They're okay talking about other teachers. They're okay talking about all of them as teachers, prophets, people who showed us, pointed the way. And so the conversation about Jesus usually, you know, goes along the the, the route of saying, yeah, yeah, he was one of them, sure. Eckhart Tolle thing, you know, yeah, he's, yeah, sure, he was, he was a great teacher, he showed us this stuff, you know, the Oprah thing. But I don't think that option is really left open to us. Because if we say that he was telling the truth, he wasn't a liar, and he wasn't crazy, then we're left with this dilemma. Because we have to know that if you say he's Lord, everything about your life is about to change. Everything about your life is about to change. This is not a casual come to the altar, pray a prayer. This is a everything about the way you view life and the world and your future and your is about to fundamentally change. 
Because he didn't say, I'm, yeah, I'm a good, I'm a Lord-ish type. <laughs> I'm someone you can look up to and respect. I'm Lord. If I'm Lord, I'm the one that's going to come back to judge. I'm the one that's going to come back to call into account. If I'm Lord, I'm the one that saved you. Yes, I'm the one that wants to rule you every day. That's uncomfortable. And as I said a few weeks ago when we talked about the Herod thing and all of that, it, it should make you squirm. It should make you a little bit uncomfortable. Because it's good and fine to talk about all oh, the humanity of Jesus and the divinity. But remember what John said when he closed his gospel. I've written all these things so that you would believe. The end of the day, if you choose, if you find yourself in this place of believing, you found your life redefined. It's going to be totally different. Tonight as we end, I thought it would be fitting for us to recite together the Nicene Creed. Here's something that was written. The Council of Nicaea was 325 AD. That's a long time ago. And the primary things in this is correct thinking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Primarily what it's about. That if we could say, yes, I embrace that and I understand that in embracing that, I'm saying that my life is over. <laughs> that everything of my own way of living is done with. Then you're, you're closer to catching this. So we're going to say this together and then I'm going to pray and then we'll call it a night, okay? Let's stand. It's lengthy, I warn you that. And many of you are familiar with this, but when we come to the phrase Holy Catholic Church, it's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic is Latin for universal, church worldwide, the body of Christ, okay? You ready? Here we go. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Father, thank you for sending your Son.
Jesus, thank You that because of You, we know what God is like. We believe in who You are. Jesus, help us tonight. Help us tonight to bend our knees to You, to yield, to understand that this confession of You as Lord leaves no room for our own self-will. Help us to daily embrace that. Holy Spirit, work in each of our hearts tonight and every day this week. May we be aware of your moving, of your working in us. Lead us, lead us, lead us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Church said, amen. This Thursday, we're having our Christmas Eve services, 1.30, 3.30, 5.30. It'll all be in the living room. All the elements of Wonderland that you know and love will be there. Ice skating, live monkeys, I hear. It's crazy. Candles and carols as well. Merry Christmas, everybody. I'll see you then, and then I'll see you again next week.